This sermon was recorded online during our season of Shelter in Place in Mountain View, California. We don't know when the Lord will come again as he's promised, but it should it be hundreds of years from now. Future anthropologists and historians are likely to look back on this moment in American culture and discover our obsession, indeed our preoccupation, with real estate. You only have to look at the easily available material that they will see. They'll have digital recordings of Flip This House, Flipper Flop, Property Brothers, and they'll be able to see that, that there is just something in the American psyche that's so valued that that sense of moving from a place that you actually didn't want to be in, that was run down, decrepit, in serious need of repair, wasn't worth habitation, and the hope was that it would be rebuilt, made into something completely new, worthy of the life that they saw themselves living. And you know that that's just a big part of who we are as a culture, and the, just given by evidence of the shows. You may not realize how long it's been. It started almost 20 years ago with, with I think it was called uh, Extreme Makeover, home, home Edition, where they would take a house just like that, and they would fix it up, and they would do it in the course of a long weekend. That should tell you something right there. But anyway, we'll save that. And, and they would take the house, they'd meet with a the family, they'd, they'd redesign it to the family specifications where they needed more space for whatever reason, and the family wouldn't be able to see the, the remodeling process. Only when it was completed would they be able to see it in what was called the reveal. It was a great fanfare. The, the family would be driven back to their house after being out of it while everything was being worked on. And lo and behold, the reveal would be made and they would see this amazing transformation of the home that they were so desirous of having changed. And now it was this beautiful, wonderful place. And it was the, the, the whole emotional aspect of the moment was what the show's producers were trying to capture having left their former home, now they're in something that they never could have imagined. And in its own crude way, this example, I hope, serves to approximate some sense of what our readings are trying to get at today. Because this is Gaudete Sunday, and within the four weeks of Advent, Gaudete, Latin for rejoice. And it is meant to be this time where, while Advent is a penitential season where we are bowed down before the Lord, asking him to examine our hearts, look at our lives, see if there's any way in us that is offensive, that somehow makes us not ready to receive him fully as Savior. We are in this posture of penitence. And in this Sunday, our heads are lifted up by the lectionary readings to focus on what it is that is our future hope. What is it that is the cause of such rejoicing? So we're going to look at our lectionary text because they actually have a flow to them that help first establish what it is that we're giving so much thanks over. What is it that just fills our heart with this, this natural and, and, and kind of uncontrollable expression of joy? That's Isaiah's passage. He talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And as he talks about that, then when we move into the Psalms that Dean and Mindy read, Psalm 126, we just have this natural expression of, of what this feels like, what this, what this looks like. But the, the flow then takes us through into the New Testament. And that reading out of 1 Thessalonians is addressed to a church in this already and not yet place. We, we don't have heaven realized at this point. We're looking forward to it, but we still have to live 
in this time frame, with all its imperfections and all, with all the places that still are in enemy hands, so to speak. And then finally, the gospel brings us, in a way, back to, uh, sort of points us to the future. So we're going to look at that. My, my prayer as we do so is that the Lord uh, awakens hearts of rejoicing, that whatever we've brought, come into today with, whatever the concerns, whatever the sort of uh, cloud cover, whether that's emotional or circumstantial, gets lifted, that we can see beyond that into this place, this true hope, this certain hope that God has for us. So Isaiah 65, the Old Testament reading, speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. It says, it opens up that way, see, I'll create a new, new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered, remembered and nor will they come to mind. And when we think about that, it's, I think one of the first things to realize is that when God is creating new heavens and new earth, there actually, there's a materiality to them. There's a physical aspect to them, just as there are today. Now, today we sit in a place that is corrupted by the fall of man, by the sin that continues to reign, and, and it is far from perfect. We suffer death and decay and corruption and the creation, Romans tells us, yearns to be released from that, cries out for that. And so when Isaiah, as a prophet, is pointing us to a new heaven and a new earth, he's talking about the time where all will be made new, where, where what was intended and actually created in the Garden of Eden gets restored. And the Garden of Eden was God's presence, and Adam and Eve were there living as they were intended to, living in his presence forever unaffected by anything that would later be characteristic of the fall. And now that's going to be restored, a new heavens and new earth. And we are going to be different materially and physically. We will be in glorified bodies, says 1 Corinthians 15. But we are still in bodies. We're not in some disembodied spiritual state. That's more owes its, its thinking to Plato or Neoplatonistic theological thinking or a combination of that. But if you read anything, for example, by N.T. Wright, you know that he goes to great lengths to explain and show that, that the Lord is making a new heaven and a new earth, that we as his members of his family will be able to experience, and for us, experience for the first time. That's why we look forward to it. We're now in this home that we want to have improved. We want it changed. We want it different. We want it better. But who can do that but God himself? And so that's the hope. And when and Isaiah gives us a glimpse of, of what that actually means, he, and he does so in this, kind of in this poetic way by, by pointing to the reasons why our heart longs for this, by pointing to some examples that are particularly emotionally hard for anybody, to lose a child in infancy, to, to find an adult friend or family member who just passes away unexpectedly in their prime, doesn't live out the years that you expected for them. These are examples or people that live in the constant uncertainty of, of the insecurity of their livelihood or their job. You know, they're planting vineyards, but they're not able to enjoy it. They have homes, but it's uncertain how long they'll be able to have them. Back in Bible times, these things were either destroyed by pests or raiders or, yeah, life was precarious then, and life is precarious now. And so Isaiah comes with this good news, looking forward to the coming of Christ, and for us, in our context, to the second coming of, of the Lord. And it's in that time. When that happens, do you know what? Verse 20 of that Isaiah passage begins, Never again 
will there be these things that so hurt our soul, so tear us up, so are such a departure from what we were created to experience? Never again. And so the life in the future, the new heavens and the new earth, will be characterized by a never again of having to experience such things. The new order will be completely different than what we can actually imagine. That Isaiah passage closes with, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Like, what? The lion will eat straw like an ox. These are things that are incomprehensible. If you've watched any wild kingdom, you know that that stuff just doesn't exist right now. But such will be the transformation where, where we don't have to survive by taking the life of another living being. That, that is so different from where we are today. But that is an example of how different and how much more glorious the new heaven and new earth is. There will be neither harm nor destruction on my holy mountain, says the Lord. And so with that, what is our reaction? Like that should, that should be welling up into, into our hearts with some kind of doxology and giving God glory and, and giving him rejoicing. That is what's being called for. And so Psalm 126 gives, gives voice to that. When it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, because that's what we're talking about. When he restored the fortunes of Zion, we're like those who dreamed, those that had the reveal, those that said, I, I was told it was going to be good, but I didn't know it was going to be this great. This is amazing. And our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues were with songs of joy. It was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And... I just want us to kind of grab onto that for a minute to know that this is what awaits us who stay faithful in the Lord. This is what awaits us now and is actually designed not only to be a future hope, but something that sustains us even in the present. There will come a time when all that has been promised, all that we're, we've read just this you know, few minutes ago will become a reality and we will give voice along the way that this, this psalm has called out. But in the meantime, we have to live in this, in this present. And then and this is where Thessalonians helps us in many ways. It says, and in light of this certain hope, how shall we live? Peter asks this question, what kind of people ought we to be? And the te text that we read says this, people should rejoice always. Verse 16 of that passage says, rejoice always always. It's elaborated on, Paul elaborates it on in, in Philippians 4 when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Gaudete. Just let, let, let what God has put in each of us and the hope that he has for us, let, let, let that just come out and let it come out in the here and now. And that's why, that's why Paul is bold to say there's enough going on in terms of the Lord's life in us by his spirit and the mission he's given us and, and the way that as a body of believers, as Holy Trinity, he forms us to be a revelation of his fullness that others might come into this kingdom. Others might be a part of this throng in Psalm 126 that will say the Lord restored our fortunes. That should be resulting in rejoicing. Memorize that verse, rejoice always. If you're into scripture memory, this is a gimme. This is like, great, I got it. Verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Rejoice in all circumstances. Rejoice. When do we do that? We're in a, in a shorthand kind of way saying, Lord, your hope is real. Your future is certain. 
what I read about in your scriptures, what it's pointing me to when you come again and bring me into your kingdom, the new creation, a new heaven and new earth. I know that that is my future. So I can give thanks and I can rejoice even in the midst of stuff that is hard, even in the midst of a place that I don't want to be, that is broken down, that is decrepit, that is in need of repair, whether that's our circumstances, whether that's our psyche. I mean, the application is goes across whatever category you choose to connect it with. So give rejoicing. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Part of the reason we rejoice is the Lord's presence is always with us. I think one of the great things about the reveal is we can finally see what we expected to see. And in fact, we can't even know the fullness of what will be revealed. And even in the presence of the Lord, how how imperfectly we understand that here and now, we know that he's here. Part of the what gives us his spirit in us gives us the opportunity to truly rejoice in all things. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So whatever is pressing in against each of us, Maybe us as a church and us as a culture. There's a lot of things that are pressing in against us. Know that, that whatever trouble we have, take heart in this world. Take heart because Christ is overcoming. We can rejoice in this gospel passage. Um, before we get there, I just want to say um, that the idea of rejoicing and suffering actually go together. They're meant to go together. Paul, you know, is writing to the Philippians, as you heard, he's writing to Thessalonians, both churches under persecution. There's something about the fact that when when the pressure intensified, so too should the rejoicing, because it meant that the presence and the work of the Lord was more at hand. Perhaps we can't see it. We don't quite know what its outcome will be. We don't know how this will fully glorify him, but we know he's at work. So in the times of greatest pressure, ought to be times where we really take pause and say, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always, Lord. Gaudete. I'm going to rejoice. Say it again. Reveal, Lord. Remind me of what awaits me. And as he does that, perhaps he'll put the passage of John in our heart. This is an interesting time in in Jesus's ministry. It's a time of transition, if you will, because John is the prophet. He is the the successor to, to Elijah, spiritually speaking. And it is in it, you know, his, John's disciples are coming to him and they're saying, hey, Jesus, who you baptized, he's now baptizing people. And then um, an argument develops. But John kind of calms everybody down and he says, uh, he, he says, the person can only receive what was given to him from heaven. You yourselves testify that I said, John says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the one who's been sent to him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend speaking of himself, who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And John is properly telling his disciples that his ministry is actually coming to an end. The handoff is is happening right there. Jesus, whom he foretold, is now here. He is now the Messiah. I mean, he is the Messiah. Now he is present. And so John, you know, says in other places, he must increase and I must decrease. And he uses this bridal imagery to say this. John sees himself only as a friend of the bridegroom. 
He is not the bridegroom himself. The bridegroom has come for his church. And this is what John is saying. The Messiah has come. The bridegroom is here. But we also know from Revelation that the bridegroom will come again for his church. The last two chapters in Revelation refer to that. There will be a descending of the new Jerusalem, which refers to us, the people of God. When, you know, Advent anticipates the second coming of Christ and the complete restoration, the new heaven and new earth is characterized in different ways throughout scripture. At the end of Revelation, it's characterized as the new Jerusalem coming down with which will have the presence of God and all of us, his saints called the church, but also called his bride. We will be living together. And so the bridegroom has come and the bridegroom will come again. We can rejoice that he has come already and we will rejoice even more when he comes again to claim us for his own. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.